So right after James, we get the first book of 1 Peter. Um, let's pray and then we'll, we'll read our passage and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your unfailing love that never changes. Um, we do ask, Lord, that you would bless us as we look at the book of 1 Peter, that you would not only have our hearts, Lord, but that we would um, submit them to you and you would change us in them more and more into the image of Christ. So bless us, Lord, as we read, as we study. I ask, Lord, that in my teaching this morning that you would allow the text to say what it says and uh, that you would use it. Amen. So we're going to read it, and it's the first chapter. We're reading the whole thing. If you're thinking, well, that sounds like a, a, an awful lot, it is. You're right. We're going to try to maintain a very big, broad view of what Peter's saying here. And so as much as I would like to get down and really look at each verse, we're going to kind of hit some big highlights because I think he's making some, a big point here in this chapter and it's worth looking at that in its entirety. And I'm considering when we get to Bible study in uh, the fall, we may actually do the book of 1 Peter. So if you're interested and you're, you're curious about really getting into it, then that may be one you want to attend. So, let's read it together. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. 
it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were transformed from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of imperishable seed, but of imperishable throughout the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Amen? Okay, so... That's a lot. Our author is Peter, as it states at the beginning. And let's cover some ground. First of all, just to, to introduce this, I don't know about you, but we all have questions about things in life, especially what we ought to do about life. When I was 17, I had a whole battery of questions. Okay, who, you know, I want to get married. Who am I going to marry? And you know what? As I read scripture, I found that it didn't answer that question. To my surprise. We, we have lots of questions. At 43, I have different questions than I did at 17. We have questions like this. You'll hear these periodically, if they're not your own, from other people. If God is good, how can he allow innocent people to suffer? What Netflix show should I binge next? Is the world headed into nuclear war with Russia? Will more me time make me happier? Should I move to another state? How do I make my kids happy? How do I make my wife happy? What do I do if bread becomes $100 a loaf due to inflation? 
Why am I even here? Will AI take over the world? How did I spend so much time on YouTube today? And how did I spend so much money last month on Amazon? Some of those are silly and mundane, but these are questions that we ask, and we ask questions because we want to then translate the answers of them into action, don't we? I find, ultimately, that I tend to ask the wrong kinds of questions. Do you ever realize that? If we ask the wrong questions, that often leads to wrong answers and wrong actions, doesn't it? It's like we're scrambling to build a house and we haven't laid a foundation. There are problems with that, aren't there? Peter, in this text that we just read, is much more interested in answering foundation-type questions than he is about the mundane ones. Because foundation questions lead to a better structure of one's life, don't they? So, with that in mind, we're going to grapple still with those same mundane questions, but if the foundation questions are answered, we come to better conclusions and better actions, don't we? Additionally, we might find that some of the questions we initially asked are just unimportant. They don't matter. So Peter is going to answer the following questions in the text that we just read. Who am I? How do I think? And what do I do? In other words, your identity determines your mindset which guides your actions. Can you see that flow? We're going to see that that that's what he addresses in this massive text. And so you can see now we're going to hit these as highlights. Identity determines mindset which guides actions. If you're going to take notes and you want a title, it's elect aliens. I know that sounds funny. Not like aliens from Mars. A little different. We'll get into that. And we have three main points, and that is alien identity, alien mindset, and alien actions. We'll hear those three words a lot. Identity, mindset, actions. So, let's get into it. Point number one, alien identity. Who am I? Peter defines that for us. He begins by saying that this book is to those who are elect exiles. So we ask the question, what is an exile? We're not as familiar with that word. The New American Standard translates the Greek word, which is parapidamos, as alien. We might be more familiar with that. We think about like illegal aliens, people who are not American citizens coming into the United States. That's something we're familiar with. That's the kind of idea that Peter is using. Think about it. The American Heritage Dictionary states an alien is owing political allegiance to another country or government. They are foreign. 
belonging to, characteristic of, or constituting another or very different place, society, or person. Strange, foreign, dissimilar, inconsistent, opposed as in nature. So Peter says, who are you? You're an alien. If you've believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you also are an exile, an alien in a strange land. You owe your allegiance to a different country with a different king. You are foreign, different, inconsistent with the world around you, opposed to it in your very nature. You may be feeling that identity more keenly than you used to when you watch the news or you turn on the TV, or you hear people talk. This identity, though, is no accident. As Peter lays it out, the next word in the phrase we have it is they're elect exiles. In the Greek, it, it happens at the end, but it's this word in Greek is eklektos, meaning chosen. It's not an accident. John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This choice, this election has a foundation. Notice it says that it's according to God's foreknowledge. This alienness is God's doing from the beginning. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. This choice also has a method. It's in the sanctification of the Spirit. Our alienness is achieved by the Spirit working in us to make us like Christ, to make us holy. And it has a purpose. Notice, it's for the obedience to Jesus Christ. We are saved and made different for obedience to Jesus Christ. And then Peter gets more specific about this work that the Father does. He says in verse 3 that he caused us to be born again. Literally in the Greek, it's he birthed us anew. I, I, don't, I don't know if you caught this, but earlier this week I, I saw a headline that made me laugh. I didn't even bother reading it. There's a woman who is suing her parents for giving birth to her without her consent. <laughs> is that wild? And, and we all laugh at that because we know that there is no possible way for someone who was birthed by their parents to have given consent. It wasn't up to them, was it? And that's how this is phrased here. God birthed us anew. You think, this is Peter. He's the apostle who walked with Jesus. He would have been there debriefing with Jesus after a conversation with Nicodemus in which Jesus answered Nicodemus and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this is originated by God the Father. 
and with purpose. It's to a living hope, and it is to an inheritance. That he's birthed us new for this purpose that we now have this hope. And it's not hope like you and I think of hope. We're kind of like, man, I hope the weather's good tomorrow because I want to wash the car. But chances are, if I do, it'll rain. You know, that's not what we're talking about. In Bible times, hope was an expectation based on experience with the outcome or experience with the one guaranteeing that outcome. So in Job 14.7, and this is one we can relate to, for there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and its shoots will not cease. Have you ever cut down an oak tree in your yard? Five days later, it seems like, boom, we've got shoots coming out of that stump, right? So by experience, we can say, well, that's probably going to happen. We've seen it. Peter, I'm sorry, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 1.10 says, He, being God, delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. Our hope is not a wishful thinking hope. It is something that is based on precedent. That God has done things. All throughout the Old Testament, you see admonitions to the nation of Israel to act based on what God has already done. To trust him because of his actions. And that is exactly what this living hope is like. This hope is living because Jesus was raised from the dead. The tomb is empty, isn't it? Amen? He's the firstborn of many brothers, Romans 8.29 says. He's the personal source of our hope. We look forward to having a new body someday and being with the Lord because Christ was raised. This birthing anew is one that is to an inheritance, and he describes it. It's imperishable. It's not like fruit you bring home that's bad the next morning. It doesn't decay. It's undefiled. There's no deformity to it. It's not affected by sin. It's unfading. It's not like... The grass that now is brown outside, whereas two months ago it was bright, vibrant green. It's not like that. And it's reserved in heaven, meaning it's guarded for you. And it's guarded by God the Father and his power. So notice that due to the work of the Father birthing us anew, there is a new identity that we have. Who are we? We're elect aliens, strangers in this land. Our identity is a new people, alien to this world with a hope and inheritance to be found after this life. And it affects how we live this life now. Can you see how in answering who we are, Peter is already beginning to shape how we make choices and act upon them? We have a hope that affects how we answer questions about what we do. It's not that we cease to contemplate all the questions of life, but we view them through this eye of hope and inheritance. Identity determines mindset, which guides actions. Um, I, have, I have a little guy, 
Levi is going to be three in September. And one of the things that we're getting in the habit of saying is that, um, you know, we don't do that in our family. He's three, and sometimes he has a strong will, and, and somebody says, we need to clean this up and go to dinner, and he's having a good old time, and, and he'll throw a fit. And we sit down with him, and go, no, this isn't what we do. Our family doesn't respond to things this way. Your identity as a Landsguard determines that you don't act like this. It determines that you don't respond to mommy by screaming. And he's getting used to hearing that now. Doesn't mean it changes everything, but he's getting used to it. Point number two, alien mindset. How do we think? This identity determines how we ought to think about life. It's a mindset with an attitude and with an awareness. Peter lays this out. He says in verse 6, In this you rejoice. There's an attitude of rejoicing. This rejoicing is, is one that is demonstrative. It should be visible. In fact, the word is like a calf being let out of the barn in the morning and jumping around for joy, right? This is something that should be visible. This is not a dour, sober kind of, I look like uh, I just swallowed a pickle, this is something that should be reflected outwardly. These are people who rejoice. And the rejoicing is based on something. The source is everything he just said. We rejoice because you have a new birth. You have a living hope. You have an inheritance. And you're guarded by God's power. Those things ought to change one's attitude about everything in life. And then notice he contrasts this. He says, though, now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So in contrast to the reality that they are experiencing trial, they are rejoicing. Can you see the pitting of those two things, one against the other? This is very different than how we tend to want to respond to life. We have a trial, we rejoice. But he goes on, he, he talks about these trials, he says they're temporary. Remember, there's a hope of an inheritance. This life is not all there is. It's temporary. They may also be necessary. It's up to him. He has the ultimate purpose, doesn't he? And so the trial may actually be something that he has determined we need. Regardless of the source, even these trials have a purpose. They result in praise, glory, and honor at Christ's coming. And, and most of the commentators I'm looking at is saying that this praise, glory, and honor is because of and for the Christian as they faithfully have responded in rejoicing. That at Christ's coming, we're sharing in praise, joy, glory, honor because of responding obediently and joyfully in this life. That's pretty amazing. 
Now, he then says, he has two more of these kind of, you do this, though this is true. He says, you love, though you don't see. You believe and rejoice, now we have rejoice again, though you do not see. So you think about this. Peter saw Christ. He saw the empty tomb. And he was there when Thomas said, if if I see the nail prints in his hands and the gash in his side, then I'll believe. And Jesus comes into the room, right? And he says, here, take a look. Don't be unbelieving, but believe. And then Jesus says this amazing thing. Blessed are those who believe, even though they haven't seen. And it's as though Peter is creating this hyperlink back saying, that's you guys. You guys are loving, believing, and rejoicing, even though you haven't seen what I have. And you're blessed because of it. That's pretty amazing. And so the attitude of the elect alien changes how we look at life, how we answer questions. And then there's an awareness. We're going we're gonna to skip over a portion here because we, we've got to keep moving. But suffice it to say, we're going we're gonna to land on verse 13. And everything before it, which we're moving over, Peter talks about prophecy. And that the prophecy of the Old Testament is pointing to Christ. And that the angels long to look into this salvation. So the whole thing is about salvation. And then he says in verse 13, therefore. Now whenever there's a therefore, we want to say, well, what's it there for? Right? Therefore, in other words, because of this salvation, think a certain way. And we're going to say thinking with an awareness. He says two things that are the therefore. Because of the salvation, have a prepared mind and have a sober mind. He says, in verse 13, therefore preparing your minds for action. This is the idea of, you've probably seen people wear these tunics, they're wearing these long robes, it looks like they have a bathrobe or something like that, but it's not all fuzzy. And, You think, how in the world could you ever run or fight a battle like that? Well, they would do this thing where they called girding up their loins. Where they would take it and there was a way to tuck and fold and then go like that. And you're ready for war or to fight or run. And and it took a little bit, but if you did that, you're set now. You're prepared. You've taken all the loose ends and tied them together. There's nothing unaccounted for. We get an example of this in the story of Elijah after Mount Carmel. And he does this. He girds up his loins. And then he outraces a chariot by God's strength, which is pretty phenomenal. Now, you think, how do you do that with your mind? Well, the idea is, one, be prepared. There's a preparation. There's a thoughtfulness Think about a a runner. I don't know if you've ever known somebody who's run marathons before. They don't just go run a marathon, do they? There's like 
months, sometimes years of preparation. And for some of these guys and gals, it's their life. This is just everything. They wake up and there's a routine that is all for the purpose of the race. They think differently, don't they? They examine their food differently. They examine their sleep differently. Everything is run through this grid of the race that's coming and preparing for it. That's the idea here. So, if we're going to have a prepared mind, we're thinking in context of we've been given a salvation and we're looking to the hope that's coming. What is going on in here that is preparing me for there? And making me useful now to help maybe prepare others to be there one day. And then he says sober-minded. So whereas prepared is an active doing a thing to get ready, sober-minded is actively preventing other things from keeping me ready. Does that make sense? Well, think, what does alcohol do? I mean, this is the direct reference. Alcohol doles your thinking. It slows your response. If you were a runner and you then drank a bunch of alcohol the night before and had a hangover to go out and do the run, it's not going to work, right? And so what external sources might have that effect? That doesn't mean just alcohol or drugs. What am I putting into my mind, because that's the context here, that's going to have that same effect? Is it the voices of certain people in my life that I'm allowing to have their influence override what Scripture says? Is it some talking head on the news that their fear and worry of world events is causing me to not think about what is truly important? Is it someone on YouTube? Is it just funny things? Is it I'm too caught up in maybe just doling my mind with comedy? What is it? If you're like me, you start thinking through that and you go, oh yeah, there are some of those. I've got them. Can you see how this idea of the attitude, as well as awareness, that this alien mindset has, affects how you answer questions about what do I do in this world? I'm facing the world with an attitude of rejoicing, of love, of belief, with an awareness that pulls together the loose ends of my mind and keeps out things that might distract me. So, do we rejoice in the trials or be that are large or small because of this living hope and inheritance? Do we actively love him and believe him though we do not see him? Do we prepare our minds daily for action? Do we resist engaging in mental activities that might prevent us from being sober-minded? Identity determines mindset which guides our actions. Point number three. Alien actions. What do I do? Well, Peter tells us. This mindset leads to specific actions. Peter now gives four commands to answer. Set your hope fully 
resist completely, walk fearfully, and love earnestly. So, set your hope fully. Notice he's going back to something he's already talked about. You've been birthed anew to a living hope. And now he's telling you in the imperative. This is a command. It's like your mom and dad saying, clean your room. Right? Go do it now. There's no option. It's not a suggestion. He's saying, hope fully. Not as in, well, hopefully. No, no, no. Hope completely. He says, hope fully. This fully adverb is the idea of a completeness without wavering, remembering that this is founded on what Christ has done already and that we're looking to him to return. Then he says, resist completely. In other words, don't be conformed. This is the only verb in this list that's not in the command form. It's in the middle voice in the Greek, kind of giving the idea that you've got choice, but you also can be influenced by some outside source. So he says, do not be conformed. You think about this, conformed is the idea of being with formation, right? To be molded to something. And specifically, he's talking about being molded to the world, to your former deeds, to the way you used to live. He's saying, don't find yourself formed to that. Instead, be holy. Be holy like your heavenly Father is holy. Um, If you are a Christian, you once were a slave to sin. Now you're a child of God. You've been given a new birth. We need to stop submitting to the old desires, don't we? Yet they, they creep in and they're really convincing. But he says, don't do it. Instead of that old mold, God has called you to be shaped to his mold. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. John 4.34 says, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, meaning the Father's work. That was what Jesus did. That was his one concern. What does God have for me to do? And that's what we're called to do as well. He says, walk fearfully. All of this knowledge about what God's done for us ought to cause us to walk fearfully. He uses the word conduct. Conduct your lives with fear if you've called on God the Father. And so he gives these two reasons for this. One, if you've called on God the Father, and then also the blood of Jesus Christ. Thinking about this, if you've called on God the Father and he saved you by the blood of Jesus Christ, and then you conduct your life in a brazen I don't care about God manner, you've got a lot to fear. For one, I would be questioning, if I'm actually not producing fruit in my life, am I saved? I've got a lot to fear. Two, do I want to stand before the Lord and say, here's what I did with your gift in my life? 
I don't know that I want to do that. Romans 14, 11 through 12, Paul says, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of God to himself. These questions about what we do in life, we will give an accounting for. If God has given us this incredible grace and mercy, what are we going to do with it? You think about the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. And, and God, or Jesus, talks about um, these servants that each get something with which to go and invest. And one of them buries it in the ground and does nothing with it. The others all do something and they all hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And they get more to use. Whereas the first one is called the wicked servant. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, don't we? We want to be those who take what God has given and use it to his glory. So this fear is both the idea of great respect due to the holy and sovereign God, because that is his due, as well as the fear of disappointing the one who's saved us in his great love and mercy. So the last thing that he commands, and this is in the imperative, is love earnestly. Having talked a lot about this vertical relationship with God and how that affects our lives, he now talks about the horizontal. And so he describes this as brotherly love or family love, that you should love one another. And then the command comes after it. So notice he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love. Different word. One is phileo, which is family, brotherly love, affection. The next love is agapeo. And this is the way Jesus loved us. This is where Peter has the conversation with Jesus at the end of Matthew. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Uh, in this self-sacrificial way. And Peter says, I love you like a, like, like a brother. And Jesus says, do you love me in a self-sacrificial way? And they go back and forth. These are those two different words. And so he commands, this is Peter, who was that guy. He commands them, love self-sacrificially. And then he adds an adverb. He says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This word earnestly is interesting because it, the root of it is the idea of to reach one's hand out persistently and grasp. And so loving each other with this persistent self sacrificial love like Christ did for us. He's saying, you do that now. Again, this is a command. This isn't feel nice thoughts about the person next to you at church. Wave at them. Hope they have a good week. I'll pray for you. This is the way that Christ loved us. 
This is much, much more intense, isn't it? And it's a command. It's a command to love each other fervently. What does that look like practically? These are things when you think, do I value the people around me in such a way that they would say, that person loves me that way? Am I doing that? Or am I just giving lip service to the idea of fellowship? This is how the alien mindset, knowing this attitude that we have based on the hope that has been given to us from this new birth, we have this mindset where we are rejoicing, we're believing, we have a prepared mind, and now it's turned to hoping in eternity, becoming holy as God is holy, conformed not to the world systems, but seeking to be obedient, motivated by the gift of Christ and his sacrifice, and moving us to love each other. So, identity determines mindset, which guides our actions. And as we face the questions of life, this ought to shape how we both question them and answer them. So let's think about those questions from the beginning a little differently. When we started, some of those maybe we could relate to. Some of them seemed a little silly. Some of them maybe we maybe ask but not admit. If God is good, how can he allow innocent people to suffer? Let's reframe that. If no one is innocent due to sin, and God uses suffering to turn us to him, how can I be more useful in spreading that message? What Netflix show should I binge next? Is Netflix trying to conform me to the image of the world? Is the world headed to nuclear war with Russia? Better question. How is God moving the world toward Christ's return and judgment? How will me time make me more happy? Better question. How can I rejoice more in what God has for me right now? Should I move to another state? Better question. How can I serve the body of Christ where I am right now? How do I make my kids happy? Better question. How can I teach my kids to find their joy in Christ Jesus? What do I do if bread becomes $100 a loaf? Better question. If God provides for the birds of the air, I wonder what amazing ways he'll provide if inflation increases. Why am I even here? Better question. If I'm here to enjoy God and bring him glory, how can I do that more? Will AI take over the world? Better question. How can AI be used to bring people to Christ? And as people feel more lonely due to AI, how can I reach out to them personally? How did I spend so much time on YouTube? Better question. If I tie up the loose ends of my mind, should I even be watching YouTube? How did I spend so much money last month on Amazon? Better question. How are my finances reflecting 
my desire to glorify God. Now, I, I don't know about you, sometimes sermons like this I listen to and I feel a little like, well, but, you know. <laughs> and I, I kick back a little bit. And you might find yourself listening to this and thinking, I feel a little threatened by this or a little offended. I've got this pocket in my life. I don't um, if that's the case, I encourage you to examine your heart. Read this again. Come to Scripture with an attitude of humility, saying, Lord, I want to submit to you. This salvation that I have, I, I don't want to have this be something that I just kind of have when it's convenient for me. I want this to be everything to me. And so I encourage you, examine your heart. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail, fail to meet that test. So if you find yourself feeling like a foreigner in this room, of foreigners, that all of this has been alien to you, let me encourage you that today can be the day of salvation where you can be birthed anew. We would, we would love to tell you more about the God of heaven and earth who loved you so much that he sent his son to pay for your sins and introduce you to a new life in him and become an alien in this world.